Let's go to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. We started this last week. This is the second great conversation in the book of John between Jesus and another individual about their eternal destiny. First one was in chapter 3 with Nicodemus. Now we're talking about the woman at the well. She's unnamed. We don't have her name. Nevertheless, Jesus knew it. And uh, her name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. Jesus meets with her and converses with her at a well over her need and over his need. He asks for her a drink. And that leads to a conversation. I think what we look at today, we're going to look at the first 15 verses. We're going to review just a little bit what we talked about last week. But as I've looked at this and studied this this week and thought about it, um, on Tuesday I was over in Idaho Falls at Christ Community Church, and it was an all-day conference there that the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association put on. They had different speakers there. It was very good. Um, it was for pastors, and uh, Matt and I tag-teamed on some other things, so I went. He did another event, and, and I took this one in, and it was well worth it. I should have took Matt with me because it was worth it. It was very good. Um, and there was a lot of conversation about this thing. We are studying evangelism. And it's interesting to me how what we're looking at here really dovetails with where we're going on the next three Tuesday nights. And I can't but help to think that that's orchestrated by the Holy Spirit. And so we're talking about sharing our faith, and we're going to use Jesus as the master. He knew exactly how to do it, didn't he? Jesus knew exactly how to share himself with other people. He wasn't embarrassed to do it. He wasn't intimidated. He was kind. But he told people what they needed to hear. Whether it was a woman at the well who had serially been married and had failed relationships in her life, which was a source of great shame and guilt for her, I'm sure, Well, we're talking about a rich young ruler who thought he had it all together. I've kept the law. I've done it flawlessly. Go sell everything you have. Whoever Jesus met with, whoever he talked with, he knew exactly what they needed to hear. We don't. That is why we must rely on the Holy Spirit. And that as we talk with other people, we don't just go to them with our own presuppositions of what they should hear or our little kind of sales pitch for Jesus. Uh, Nothing wrong with the Romans road. It's maybe a great way to start, maybe a good tool to use. But, you know, sometimes we just kind of get our sales pitch for Jesus and we just kind of run through it. And we get to the end and like, are you ready to pray and seal this deal? Jesus didn't do that. 
You can't find a place in the New Testament when Jesus ended a conversation with someone when he said, let's just stop now and let's have a word of prayer together and you ask me into your heart. Do you find that? No. Does that mean it's not important for somebody to pray and confess Jesus? Of course not. It means they should. But it's bigger than that. And Jesus puts together in this conversation a method that we can look at, that we can utilize, so that we can build individual conversations around individual needs. Individual conversations about individual needs. I don't know how long this conversation lasted. How long do you think it lasted? I don't think we have everything in this that Jesus and the woman said to each other. We have a synopsis of it. We have the big points. Obviously, there's a little more here that's going on in the conversation. How long do you think the conversation lasted? I don't know. 30 minutes? Who knows? But listen... It is 30 minutes that changed her world. That changed her destiny. Jesus took 30 minutes, give or take, out of his busy life, and he spent it with a woman with a need. And as a result of that conversation, she is with him in glory today. Thirty minutes is not much of an investment for eternal gain. Eternal gain. Now let's look at the text. When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard, by the way, that doesn't mean that Jesus didn't know it. Okay? It's not like Jesus is taking my surprise here, something he had to learn. What it means is when it was reported to him, when someone told him, when it became publicly known to him, although he is omniscient, he knows this. When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself didn't baptize only his disciples, they were his agents. It's not like they were doing it against his will. They were his agents to do it, just as the church is an agent of Jesus to do it today. He left Judea, he departed for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. Now notice that, we talked about that last week. The necessity here is not a constraint of the way of the journey. Jesus could have took various routes. He didn't have to go through Samaria. Like if you want to get here, or you want to go from here to Dubois, you have to go over Togedi Pass, right? By necessity, you got to do that. That's not what he's talking about. There is another necessity that is laid upon him. The necessity is... He knows he wants to have a conversation with a woman in Sychar. That's the constraint. So we came to a town of Samaria, 
called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It's about the sixth hour, or noon. It's noon. Now, if you don't get up till eight, it's the fourth hour. If you get up at six in the morning, it's the sixth hour, okay? A woman from Samaria came to draw water. At noon. Now, I don't want to take a lot of time with that here at this point in the message, but let's just think about something. Hottest time of the day, and a woman is coming with a big pot to get her water. And she's all alone. Now, if you know anything about Middle Eastern culture or or culture in Africa and other places where there's a communal well, it is kind of a social event to go get your water. All the women go at the same time of the day, and I guarantee it is not noon. It's when it's cool. It's hot. And she's alone. Why is she alone? Because she is not only an alien to Jesus as a Jew, she is also an outcast of her own people. It's very important to note that. She's by herself. Why is she an outcast? We find out later. It's because she could not maintain relationships and she's had multiple husbands and now she's living with a guy. And everybody in town looks down on her and she knows it. She is an outcast. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Jesus is weary. Jesus is thirsty. Give me a drink. His disciples have gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, this is a very sincere question, ask for a drink from me, and I am a woman. It's taboo in the day and age for a man to have a private conversation with a woman who is not his wife in public. It's just taboo. I'm a woman, and I'm a Samaritan. The Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. That's kind of a misleading translation. It actually is a translation that talks about eating, for the Jews don't eat out of containers that Samaritans have eaten from. It's really the force of that. It has to do with not ethnic hostility. It's not like kind of the water fountain in the South during Jim Crow days, one for the whites and one for the blacks. Not that kind of thing. This is not an ethnic problem. It is having to do with ceremonial uncleanliness because of the Samaritan's idolatry. This has to do with religion. Okay, That is a difference, and it's important you note that. God nowhere in the Word condemns the Jews for not wanting to use containers that Samaritans had used. There's no condemnation of it. In fact, it's commanded in the Torah. But Jesus is beginning to do something. 
He's doing the very thing that he's going to put on Peter in Acts chapter 10 when he's going to roll away the ceremonial regulations of the law. So things are changing. Jesus is the one who is leading in this change, and it's going to stir a lot of things up. But let's not just put this into our mind and think of it like race relations and those kind of things. This is about idolatry. It's a different animal. Remember as well, we live in the United States of America, and one of the hallmarks of the United States of America is religious freedom and toleration. Let me ask you, was there religious freedom and toleration in ancient Israel? Do you? No. You could get yourself what for it? Like stoned. Okay? We're not talking about the United States of America here. We need to go back and think like we're living in a completely different culture under a completely different administration and dispensation of God. It's a different thing. So, having said that, Jesus answered her, If you knew. If you knew the gift. Notice that word gift. That's a rich word. You knew the gift of God, who it is that is saying to you. So what is the gift of God? A person. A person. Jesus Christ. If you knew the gift of God, who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him. He would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with. The well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Now, this almost sounds like Nicodemus's question. When Jesus says, you've got to be born again, and he says, uh, that's impossible. How do I get in my mom's womb and get born again? Okay? Nicodemus was not being snarky. We talked about that. He's sincere in the way he's wording that. He's trying to get, what do you really mean by this? This woman is not stupid either. She's not being snarky. She's trying to go deeper into this and really probing Jesus as to what he means. You don't got nothing to draw water with. The well is deep. Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and he drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life, the woman said. Sir, give me this water. Sir, give me this water. Do you hear her soul's cry? Give me this water. Think about thirst for a minute. You know, thirst is an urge to drink water or fluid as a result of dehydration. I was reading various things online about thirst. And of course, everybody says this, over time, over the millions and millions of years that we were evolving, man finally evolved this mechanism so that when you are getting dehydrated, you feel a sensation called thirst. 
and that's what saves you, right? Well, if that was the case, we'd all died out a long time ago, right? Because people would have just got dehydrated and dried up like a bone. No, when God created man, what did he do? He put within man a mechanism that is a wonderful gift from God that says, hey, buddy, you need to drink. Hey, buddy, you need to drink. Now, I love to drink coffee, but coffee really is not that good to drink, right? Because it, instead of replenishing you, it is a diuretic. Not a diabetic, it's a diuretic. It may make you diabetic, I don't know, but it's a diuretic. You need to drink what? Good old water. Good old water. We need to carry water bottles and we need to drink. We live in a high elevation. We live in a, hard to believe it, as wet as it's been this year, but we live in a dry climate. And you get out in the heat of the sun or even the beating down sun in the winter and what's going out of your pores by perspiration. Even if you're doing nothing, I mean, you're just evaporating water. And if you don't drink, it's not very long until you get some dehydration and you're not functioning very well. And God has given to us an urge to drink. It's called thirst. And God uses that as a picture of the soul's desire for him as the deer pants. The water brooks, so my soul. Thirst for you, O God. When shall I come and appear before you? My tears have been my food day and night as they continually say to me, Where is your God? O my soul, why are you cast down within me? Why are you anxious? Hope in God. For I will yet praise him who is the help of my countenance and my strength. As the deer longs, thirsts for the water, so my soul thirsts for God. There is a thirst in the soul of men and women for truth. They may not know what that is. And Jesus appeals to that. He says, your life's a mess and everything's flying apart. And that has created in you a hunger, a thirst. And I'm the only one who could satisfy it. That's what Jesus is getting at here. Now, Let's do a real quick review. I mean, like, real quick. We talked about the Samaritans, who they were. We're not going to go back through. What did they believe? Uh, we talked about why was there so much hostility. I do want to talk about that one for a minute. We talked about this map. We laid it out. I'm not going to draw that again. But remember, Mount Gerizim and Sychar. Right here is where we are. Mount Gerizim is here, and Ebal is there. And here's that picture. So this is Mount Gerizim. This is Mount Ebal, and this is Sychar. Today, modern-day Nablus, and up on top of here on Mount Gerizim is where the Samaritans had built an idolatrous temple. And in the year about 150, 
a guy named John Hyrcanus, who was one of the kind of Maccabean-type guys in the intertestamental period, went up there with an army and knocked her down. Like Gideon, who knocked down the high places of his father. Remember that in the book of Judges? I bet that didn't go over big with Dad. Dad had a high place to the bales. Gideon went and he knocked it down. And so John Hyrcanus went up and he knocked down their temple. And from the year 150 on, there was a great hostility between the Jew and the Samaritan. Because the Jews went after their idolatrous practice and said, you ain't going to do this, boys. You can worship God however you want in secret, but you aren't going to have a false temple to him because that got us in big-time trouble before, which it had many times in the history of the Jews. They knocked her down. Now, we talked about the Samaritans. Remember, they're a monotheistic faith. They say they worship Yahweh. They're a revealed religion. They say they use the Torah. They have similar festivals, so they... They do observe the Passover, although it's on their own calendar. And yet they have a disputed heritage and holy site. We'll talk about that one in just a minute. And we looked at 2 Kings chapter 17 last week. If you weren't here, you may want to read that because it tells us really how these people come into being. Here's the hostility. Number one, a disputed place of worship, Mount Gerizim or Mount Zion, right? And we talked about that. God said in the book of Deuteronomy, wherever I say I am to be worshipped, that's where you do it. You don't build high places, you don't do other things. He's talking about sacrifice. He's not talking about personal prayer, individual worship. He's talking about corporate worship. We've already talked about that. I don't want to kill that bird again. Here's the other biggie. What does she say? Our father, Jacob. He gave us this well. Here's the other big area of dispute with these people. Oh, I should, have, I should have a clear screen here so I can write this. Okay, here's Jacob. Someone remind me, how many boys does he got? Twelve. They become what? Twelve clans or tribes. Who was the favorite son of Jacob? He made a coat of many colors for it. Joseph! Okay, so Joseph is the favorite boy. He also has another boy of these. His name is Judah. Joseph is the favorite, but Judah is God's choice. By the way, Judah is a bum. Right? I I was relishing this and thinking on it in my personal thinking this week in worship. God chooses messes many times. And he chose Judah, who was a mess. 
right? Remember, he takes his son's wife, thinking she is a prostitute, and has a boy by her. Who is the one who is in the lineage of Jesus, in the genealogy? So he's not a stellar man. Nevertheless, God chooses him. But you know what? You, you know, read the whole book of Genesis, and you won't find. There are very few people in the Bible that God says nothing bad about. Right? Almost everybody in the Bible has their blemishes and warts published for all eternity for all Christians to know. Aren't you glad you're not in the Bible? I mean, oh man, right? Peter, he's going to live that one down. All of them. You know what two major characters of the Bible have nothing bad said about them? Joseph and Daniel. Everybody else gets their dirty laundry aired. Now that does not mean that Joseph was perfect. But we don't know his dirty laundry. The Samaritans, now, by the way, if you think about the 12 tribes, they then have 12 inheritances in the land, right? The tribe of Judah gets their part. Where is the tribe of Joseph? Think about it. Go look on your map. Where is the tribe of Joseph? The tribe of Joseph doesn't get any tribal allotment. Why? Because his boys did. Manasseh and Ephraim. So then you say, well, wouldn't that make 13? Well, no. Here's why. Did the Levites get any land? No. So, in the 12 boys of Jacob, two of them don't get an inheritance of land. Joseph and Levi. But Joseph's two boys, Manasseh and Ephraim, both get major allotments of land. So actually, Joseph is the one guy who has two tribal inheritances. And where is his tribal inheritance? Voila, anybody want to guess? Like right here. See, hill country of Manasseh, and this is Ephraim. So what is she saying? Jesus we're from our father, Jacob. And he loved us more. That's what she's getting at here. So this hostility is not just idolatry. It's also over this issue. This has created animosity between the Jew and the Samaritan. Now, okay, I was going to talk this whole time about sharing your faith. So we got to go. How do you win a person who is hostile to both your person and your message? Jesus is going to have a conversation with a woman who does not like him. Number one, he's a Jew. And he's not supposed to like her. And she is not going to appreciate his message. You know, it's one thing to talk to somebody at a VBS five-year-old kid or ten-year-old kid grew up in a Christian home and they're just sitting there soaking it up when you talk to them. 
and to start up a conversation with somebody with blue hair holding up a big sign about stay out of my womb. Right? Whatever it could be today in the world in which we live. Some person that you know is hostile to everything you stand for. Where do you even start that conversation? How do you even begin? Where are you going to go? Let's think about it for a few minutes this morning. Now, first of all, here's the excuses we use. You ever come up with excuses? The Holy Spirit's like, Tim, now I want you to talk to that person. Well, Holy Spirit, I'd rather not. You ever been there? Okay, let's be honest. You have. So have I. What's my excuses? Here they go. I'm on a schedule. Now that could have been Jesus's. Where's he going? He's got a destination. He's on his way to Galilee. And when he gets there, he's got things to do and people to meet. And you and I can be the very same way. The Holy Spirit knocks on the door of our heart and says, I want you to talk to that person. Jesus, didn't you know I'm on a schedule? Didn't you know I got things to do today? Ever been there? Jesus didn't use that excuse. In fact, we'll find at the end of this text, as a result of this conversation, he ends up staying there for two days to deal with all the people that this woman brings to him for two days. Now, we could really kind of sidetrack on this. You know, there are some people that are just so schedule-driven, you know, and we, we're on the clock from the moment we get up to the moment we lay down. And, I mean, you even have in the bathroom next to your toilet a bin so you can do all your reading there, right? I mean, because you're not going to waste any time. You're going to make the most of every moment you got. I mean, you got a schedule. That's me. I mean, that is me. I get up, and I'm running all day. And maybe that's just because it's just me. I don't want to justify myself, but I don't think God wants us to live so willy-nilly that we don't get anything done either. Right? I think God wants us to live on purpose, with a plan, making the most of the moments. But our schedule should be subservient to his. And sometimes when Jesus knocks on the door of our heart and says, I want you to do this, then we need to say, okay, my schedule is not really mine. It's his. And if I'm going to be late to the next thing that it just seems so important, and other people are going to be mad at me, And they're going to think that I'm just like delinquent with my time. So be it. Because I'm going to take the moment that God has given me with this individual. Because 30 minutes could change the world. Second thing. I'm too tired. Ever been there? Jesus is weary from his journey. Oh, just leave me alone. I just want to sit in the shade. I just want to soak up, you know, put my feet up on the hammock. I'm tired. Did Jesus use that excuse? 
He was weary. It's noon. It is hot. He is thirsty. I'm distracted. I'm distracted. Now, if Jesus was living today and he was sitting on the well, undoubtedly he would have been doing what? Texting, right? I'm running a little bit late. Now, Jesus wasn't. We live in a day and age where we are just terribly distracted, aren't we? By nothing. By everybody else's schedule. By everybody else's expectations. Now, that wasn't the case for Jesus, but Jesus was traveling, and Jesus was weary. And it would be very easy for him in that situation to be absorbed with himself, right? And be distracted and not notice. But Jesus noticed. I was reading this morning, I like to read uh, some of the posts by Desiring God. When I got up early this morning, I was just worshiping myself. I was reading the latest post on Desiring God. And a guy named David Mathis was talking about this very thing. So I wrote down what he said. He said, we live in a day where there are enormous technological advances which keep us in touch with those who are remote while quietly undermining ties with the most proximate. Our devices have increased our sheer count of friends while stripping our lives of real flesh and blood friendship. We got a lot of friends online. Do we got any friends in the pew? It is easy to have remote relationships while those who are nearest suffer. Doesn't mean those devices are inherently bad. I got one. But I am becoming more and more aware of the reality that I will not be its slave. I will not be its slave. I will master it. What did Paul say? I will not be brought under the dominion of anything. And Paul would have probably put the cell phone at the top of that list. Another excuse personal bias. Woman of Samaria. Jesus could have said, I can't talk to you. You're a woman and you're a Samaritan. Did he take that excuse? No, we got to keep moving. Fears. We can fear what others will say, and we can fear rejection. You have this conversation, and that person may it may change your relationship with that person forever, and it may not be in a positive way. And we have that fear. Does this conversation tarnish Jesus' reputation? It does. In John chapter 8, the Jews of his day who were out to get him put in a dig. And they say to him, you are a Samaritan. this conversation follows him. When they want to put in a dig, 
You're a Samaritan. Why? Because Jesus was willing to talk to one. Okay, what can we learn from Jesus? He started by asking her to help him. We talked about these real briefly last week. We're going to do it real briefly again. He started by asking her to meet his need. That ain't a bad starting place. It opened the door. Think about this. The one who is the fountain of life asks for a drink. He started at their common context. They were both looking for water. We need to start where people are. Not where we want them to be. Not where we think they should be. We start with where people are. He didn't begin a diatribe against the intricacies of her faith. He simply presented himself as the one alone who could answer all her questions and meet all her needs. Read the chapter. We're going to talk about the actual content of the conversation next week and what it means to us. But Jesus does not get into a debate, does he? He does not go there. He simply gives her truth. That is important. When you get into debates with people, all you do is alienate and try to make yourself look good like what I know. Right? I know what you believe, and what you believe is wrong. Is what they believe wrong? Well, it very may well be. It very well may be. But Jesus doesn't get into that debate. What does he do? He simply presents the truth. I am a believer in something called presuppositional apologetics, which means this. My presupposition when I talk to anybody is that there are certain things they know and they cannot help but know. Those things may be deeply repressed, like it says in Romans chapter 1, right? Romans chapter 1, that which can be known about God is clearly seen, but men do what to it? They suppress it. They suppress the truth. But there is this thing in the ancients, like Augustine, or Augustine, however you like to say it, Thomas Aquinas and others, would talk about this thing called Deep knowledge its what God has put in the human heart. And within the human heart, there is a knowledge of truth. Now, they may not believe it. They may not act on it. But there is a repository of it. It doesn't say who Jesus is, but it does say there is a God who created, who has revealed himself. And the way you get to that deep knowledge is not by arguing about what they currently believe. The way you get to that deep knowledge is by simply telling them the truth. And there is something that is inherently beautiful about truth to the human soul. And when someone hears it, they recognize it. 
and this woman does. And so the next thing that happens in the conversation is Jesus says, go and get your hubby. And now he's going to deal with another set of truths. But he doesn't get into a debate. He doesn't get into an argument. He simply presents himself. He drew out of her her personal emptiness. We'll talk about that next week. And he offered her ultimate solutions, not superficial fixes. Church has become very good about giving people superficial fixes. When what people need is Jesus. You get Jesus and you get a good dose of Jesus, he'll fix a lot. Now, it may take him a while to do it, and he won't do it ultimately until you get to glory, but he will begin to fix things. We need to give people ultimate solutions. Ultimately, that is Jesus and becoming a true worshiper. And so he presents himself to her. Jesus is tired. Jesus is weary from the journey. He is thirsty. He's got a schedule. He's distracted. But when she comes, everything he has is focused on her. And his disciples are going to come later in the story and they're going to say, "Uh, Jesus, why are you talking to her? Right? Why are you talking to her? Don't you know who she is? What is Jesus going to say to them? Lift up your eyes. Look on the fields. They are white and they are ready to harvest. You're busy. So am I. You're tired. I can see it on a Sunday morning. I can always tell he's put in a long week. You're kind of like me, man. I remember we were night calving. This is years ago. I was in Cody. I got to shut up and quit. But we were night calving, and we had this evangelist at our little country church. And I really didn't want to go because I was tired. (coughs) But I went to all four nights. And every night while he was preaching, while that guy was preaching, I was racking in the pew. I mean, I just was. I was tired. I was up all night. I was racking out. The last night, the guy came up and chewed me out. He said, don't you know, I'm here out of town. I'm here to preach to you. What are you doing sleeping? I said, well, I didn't say this, but I wanted to say in my flesh, why don't you come nightcap with me tonight? See how things go. You know what? When you rack out on a Sunday morning, I'm not offended. I've been there, done it. I know. I mean, I know that doesn't mean you don't like me and you don't like Jesus. I know that's not what that means. It means you're what? Tired. You sat down in a warm building and you fell asleep. Now, I don't want you to fall asleep. I hope you listen. I hope you get something more than just a nap. But when you do, I'm not going to come and chew you out. I get it. We're tired. 
busy. But when the Holy Spirit knocks on your door and says, you know that person? I don't know. I've I've been claiming a couple that Amy and I know for Jesus for the Look Up Tour. I'm praying for them every day. They are my invite-a-friend. We need to lift up our eyes, look on the fields. 30 minutes to change the world. We got it. We can make time for what's really important. Let's do it. Father, dismiss us with your love. We're going to sing, Lord, to you. We're going to sing your praise. Help us, Lord, to be lifting up our eyes to the fields. Lord, I pray that you would put upon our hearts people who have an eternal soul who need you. Help us, Lord, as we just meet for a few minutes as a congregation to look at some business. I know I've gone a little bit long, and we got that to do too. Lord, may that be productive for eternity. Lord, we are kind of more like Judah than we are like Joseph. I thank you you chose us, that you use us, that you'll bring glory to yourself through us. So I pray in Jesus' name, amen.